five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Podcast on the internet. All right, there was a little uh, Gilberto Gil. And if there was a Mount Rushmore of Tropicalismo, his face would be on it. You would have Gilberto Gil, George Ben, Caetano Voloso, Milton Nascimento, Ivan Leans. Gal Costa, Maria Batania. I think that would be it. And I'm probably leaving some people out. But um, he's an interesting character. By the way, we have a little Sao Paulo in the background here. Let's uh, learn a little bit about Gilberto Gil. I think he was the guy that was in prison for his uh, political beliefs. Um, he's 80 years old. He's still alive. And uh, when was he born? Let's see. June 26th. So uh, we're coming up on his birthday. 1942. Let's take a look at his Wikipedia page. So you guys have a visual... Gilles started to play music as a child and was a teenager when he joined his first band. He began his career as a bossa nova musician and grew to write songs that reflected a focus on political awareness and social activism. He got in trouble. He was a key figure in the Musica Popular Brasileira and Tropicalia movements of the 1960s alongside his longtime collaborator, Caetano Voloso, the Brazilian military regime that took power in 64 saw both Gilles and Veloso as a threat. And the two were held for nine months in 1969 before they were told to leave the country. Gilles moved to London, but returned to Bahia in 1972 and continued his musical career while also working as a politician and environmental advocate. So there you go. Um, let's look at his imprisonment and exile. In October 1968, so this is kind of the height of the tropicalismo period. Uh, Gilberto Gil and Caetano Veloso performed at the Sucata Club in Rio de Janeiro with Helio uh, Otisica's poem flag, Seja Marginal, Seja a heroic displayed on stage, a journalist, Randall Giuliano of Record TV, 
propagated the story that Caetano and Gil had sung the Brazilian national anthem in subversive parody. The two musicians were arrested without trial December 27, 1968. Shortly after the military state had passed on December 13th, the Institutional Act Number five, which suspended habeas corpus. In February 1969, Gil and Velosa were arrested by the Brazilian government, brought from Sao Paulo to Rio de Janeiro, and spent three months in prison and another four under house arrest before being freed on condition they would leave the country. Velosa was the first to be arrested. The police moved to Gil's home soon afterward. Velosa had directed his then wife, Andrea. Um, Gadella to warn Jill about the possibility of arrest, but Jill was eventually brought into the police van along with Veloso. They were given no reason or charge for their arrest. Jill believes that the government felt his actions represented a threat to them, something new, something that can't be quite understood, something that doesn't fit into any of the clear compartments of existing uh, where are we? Sorry, somebody texted me. Where is it? Where are we? Clear compartments, this is cultural practices, and that won't do. That is dangerous. During his prison sentence, Gil began to meditate, follow a macrobiotic diet, and read about Eastern philosophy. He composed four songs during his imprisonment, uh, Cerebro Electronico, Electronic Brain, which first appeared on his 1969 album, Gilberto Gil, 1969, and later on his 2006 album, Gil Luminoso. Thereafter, Gil and Veloso were exiled to Paris and London. He and Veloso took a house in Chelsea with their wives and manager. Gil was involved in the organization of the 1971 Glastonbury Free Festival and was exposed to reggae, while living in London, he recalls listening to Bob Marley, whose songs he later covered, Jimmy Cliff and Burning Spear. He was also heavily influenced by and involved in the city's rock scene as well, performing with Yes, Pink Floyd, and the incredible string band. However, he also performed solo, recording Gilberto Gil Nega while in London. In addition to involvement in the reggae and rock scenes, Gil attended performances by jazz artists, including... Miles Davis and Sun Ra. So you can see the the swirling influences in the uh, sound of Gilles in, in the Tropicalismo uh, version of his output. Of course, Caetano Veloso has his version. And so this is a really kind of interesting period um, in Brazilian art, music, and politics. And you know, I've talked about uh, the politics of South America more than a few times on this show. And the interesting thing about that sort of political scene is how extreme it is. And rarely do you get kind of a moderate government in South America. You either get hardcore kind of right-wing dictators who often take their cues from the United States. Um, or you get the communist strongmen. 
like Maduro, for instance. So it's either one of the two in Brazil because the, the, the socialist slash communist ideology is pervasive in the, the country. And just by looking at where, you know, Paulo Freire originates from, he, he's from Brazil. And this is a guy who kind of wrote the manual, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and links it with things like uh, the Catholic Church and liberation theology. So communism is a, a, a real virus in South America. But, you know, the, 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 the tonic or um, the solution to communism has often been just hardcore strong arm dictatorial types. And again, I'm not excusing their behavior, but I kind of understand it. Like when you look around our situation here in this country and in the West, we have been infected by a virus. Literally and figuratively, we've been infected by a virus. And that virus um, is running rampant. And what we're trying to do now is we're, we're trying to combat the virus or we're trying to um, fight back and increase the potential of our immune system. And you know, we do this on an individual level, and we're we're trying, I think, now to finally do it on a collective level. And it's a byproduct of material success, relative material wealth, and taking things for granted. That's exactly what's happened in this country. That and our compassion and empathy being weaponized against us. And again, all you got to do is turn to Paulo Freire and the pedagogy of the press, and you can see it. It's all in there, right? And so by identifying with the oppressed, we can become reborn into a new awareness of ourselves and um, a religion that is more or less a state-sponsored religion of perpetual change. And we allowed ourselves to get here. And, it, and it's not because we did not have moments of self-awareness. And I've talked about this before. If you go back to the mid-90s, the Clintons were kind of the first sign that the ship was going to start to literally go south, right? I mean, that's, that's what the Clintons were... Um, were there and and that's what that's what their ultimately their presence woke people up very quickly and there is an extreme response to um that quote unquote awakening of people it's also interesting that that was around the time that newt gingrich was on the scene and was a classic sort of rhino sort of gatekeeper. I mean, he was conservative, 
But on the other hand, he wasn't all that conservative, right? It was an, I, I, would, I wouldn't say, I guess it was an interesting time. So we're talking the mid nineties and people were trying to wake up. They were, they were, they were hip to the trick. But that, I mean, but by the time we got there, the, you know, we had long been under the spell of conspicuous consumption and, um, you know, kind of the, 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 the bad facts of capitalism. We got lazy. We got lazy and we reached a place on Maslow's hierarchy of needs where we started to navel gaze a lot. And there's and there's nothing wrong with a bit of a navel gaze, but you know, we became preoccupied with the navel gaze. And we took our our eyes off of the political ball. And what happened with the whole Q phenomenon is that those two worlds began to intersect and have kind of a Pisces vesica um, interzone where political awareness was um, merging with spiritual awareness, but not in the way that it had during the, say, the the 90s, right? The early 90s and, and the 80s, which was, and clearly the 80s, there was a lot of a lot of hopium in the air in the 80s. Um, but that 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 began to happen. And now you have films like Plandemic 3 and somebody like Mickey Willis, who comes out of sort of that liberal progressive um kind of new age tradition. And makes a movie about essentially the communist takeover of the West and, 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 you know, the requisite sort of steps to take, you bring in sort of the Judy Mikovits side of things or Mikovits side of things and, um, and immunity and, and taking care of the body and, you know, kind of anti big pharma. And so now we see this sort of, you know, the, the, cultural pieces of a, of a new organizing principle. And it's kind of where we're at right now. And, and people are scrambling to just hang on to their health and have a healthy point of view with their bodies and a healthy point of view with uh, this thing that we call society or, or culture at large. And there are days where... Um, Perhaps I'm a bit, I wouldn't say depressed, but a bit dismayed. And there are other days where it feels like, yeah, I mean, this is this is exactly where we need to be. And I'm really interested in watching the nodes shift from Taurus Scorpio to Aries Libra. And it, it might get a bit extreme with the true node in Aries. But it feels to me like the the uh, the expression of the individual in a martial sense is going to be highlighted. Now, of course, along with that, we have the prospect of war uh, with Aries conflict. It's a time of conflict, but it's not conflict that people should uh, avert their gaze from, right? I mean, this is where 
with the true node in areas, we can take things on and we can make them a bit more personal, right? It's like, we don't have to shy away from it. We'll learn a lot during this period of time. We'll learn about independence, interdependence, the expression of will and standing up for uh, oneself in the face of kind of the, you know, the onslaught of techno tyranny. So buckle up, buttercups. It's going to get interesting. And I think we're on the right path. I think we're exactly where we need to be. I wish we were a little ahead of the curve, but I think we're exactly where we need to be. And uh, we're going to trust in the process. So there you go. Trust the plan. All right, let's check out who's here and what's happening in Chataria. Chataria. Let's see who do we have. We got DJMC, door at the door. Good morning. Why are you hidden? Uh, why are we hiding your? What's wrong with your comment there? Happy Wednesday. There we go. Uh, what's going on, Tomas? Sony, the classy one. Marie NYC, getting ready for summer in New York City. Hot down summer in the city. Back of my neck, get dirt and gritty. That song needs a remake. Wendy says, the beautiful one. Hi, Wendy. Equicentric. Front row on Wednesday from the front. Yes, there we are. Lena. Hi, Lena. Good morning to you. Uh, let's see. Kabuki Theater, 12 killed, 100 injured at Juneteenth celebrations. So I, I tweeted out to Jason Whitlock, who never uh, replies to any of my tweets, but I tweeted out to Jason Whitlock. Why do we even, he says, is Juneteenth uh, a holiday worth celebrating? Here, let me let me throw this back out in a different way. Why do we even need days to commemorate anything? Why do we need to do that? I could make a case that any day besides National Macaroni and Cheese Day is not a day worth celebrating, or National Dog or Cat Day. Maybe that's it. Why do we need days to commemorate it seems like there's like a day now for every fucking special interest group. You can't get rid of them. Get rid of the special days. There are no special days. Every day is a special day. But it's a blank slate, the uncarved block. And you get to um, write your own story on that day. Will it be a headline or an epitaph? Right? Get rid of them all. No more special days. It feels quite egalitarian. But oh no. No. We have to have a special day for everyone in every occasion. All right. Who else do we have here? Good to see you, Bo. Happy solstice. Oh, yes. And guess what? It is right now, right now as I speak, the height of the summer solstice. Right now at this point in time. So we're all sharing this moment together. 
right, Braden, can you feel it? Can you feel the summer solstice vibes? Should play Season of the Witch by Donovan. Uh, let's see who else you have. Hucklebuck 411. What's up, Huck? Leela LMM. Happy Solstice back at you. Father Time. Father Time. Uh, let's see. Harry Bowie. Hey, 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 back at you. Crossfire Cat. Lobri Dan, that is checked for a good day. My witchy lingo. Oh, cool. Who else do we have? Fantastics here. Hanging laundry. Hanging laundry. Uh, Ulini. Good morning, everyone. One of my favorite songs. Great choice. Robert. Oh, nice. Somebody likes Gilberto Gil. Very cool. The formatting is weird in chat for me today. Uh, last night, I had the fucking internet night from fucking hell night. That's what I had. Yesterday was, a, yesterday was kind of a tough day. I'm just saying. Kind of a tough day. Let's see. Internet wasn't working all that well. Um, what else happened yesterday? Oh, yeah. Details. Details. And, you know, this um, wonderful upheaval in my life. We're just going to call it a wonderful upheaval and adapting to the wonderful upheaval. I could give a master's class in Saturn transiting my fourth house. Maybe not yet, but I will. Uh, Beth Barry is here. What's going on, Double B? Sea Pines. Haven't seen Sea Pines for a while. It's good to see Sea Pines. Um, let's see. Who else do we have? Jacques Cezmas. All right, we got a little... Uh, Maria de Ange, listening from a windswept beach. Maria took my advice. Good for you. Maria probably hanging somewhere on the south of France. Very jealous, if that is the case. Very jealous. Um, hanging laundry is replacing the window controller in the daughter's car. Big job for a boomer lady, but doable. You go, girl. Make it happen. 69 TM. I can't get the picture of your mom in that cowboy hat out of my mind. It will inspire and haunt you for the rest of your days, Lynn. I love that Joan and Robert took mom to the rodeo. Yeah, you know, we're just going to... It's like, you know, living here in the hill country. It's like breaking a Bronco. We're going to break her in. So the rodeo is the first stop. I got big plans. I'm taking my mother to the uh, uh, farmer's market a couple times. That's always a good little hang. I think I'll go again tomorrow. They have a... a a uh, baker there has really good bread. Not for me, but for her. She gets the good bread. 
Uh, let's see. She was definitely styling. I don't know. So, yeah, man, I got to deal with my site. I want to see the picture that Mark guested that photo. Let me see if I can find it. I want to see if I can find that photo. It's a great picture. Let's see. I got to go back here. Fantastic picture. There it is. And let me uh, send this to myself. Throw this in here, and then I'll show you the picture. It is such a good picture. Okay. I think it's come through. Let's take a look at it. Yeah, here it is. Mark's the man. There you go, Tomas. <laughs> Isn't that great? There you go, Lynn. Maybe that'll replace the... Uh, the other image. I love how he did the crowd. Right, this is all with his digital stylus, right? So cool, and he got these clouds in here. And he did it really quickly. So uh, for all you people that are watching and or listening, uh, Mark will be at our event in uh, October. So. My, my phone is copying my speech. I didn't ask you to do that, phone. But if you're going to be at the... Okay. If you're going to be at the event in October, you'll get to have your own caricature done by the man himself because Mark's going to be there. Uh, another reason why you should attend the event. We've got 13 rooms left. And um, if you're interested, you got to go to the end of the hills or call them up into um, the hills in Kerrville, Texas, and secure your room. It's the Harvest Moon uh, gathering, and it's October 13th. It's actually the 12th if you show up on Thursday. And then it is the 15th if you leave on, uh, let's see, 13th, Friday, 14th, 15th, 16th on Monday. We have 13 rooms up, the last 13 rooms available in the Hill Country for the Eclipse event in October. So there you go. And that just went out in the latest uh, newsletter. Uh, let's see, who else do we have? Uh, Kelly B. What's happening, Kelly B? Good to see you. Um, let's see. Who else? Who else? Who else? Anybody new? Going once, going twice, going three times, four times, five times. 
Six times, seven times, eight times. Primo, good to see you. Um, I have a potential ride for you, Christine, out to the event, just saying. Uh, I drove Newt in a convertible at a parade. Interesting. Interesting commentary. Let's see who else do we have. I had access to a convertible. He needed a ride. It was fun. Probably 1993. I tell you, man, he was really propped up. Newt Gingrich um, was the Republican and conservative rock star. Uh, he was equally despised, though, on the so-called left. It was interesting to see how Gingrich was supportive of Donald Trump early in the game. By the way, did anybody see the interview that Trump did with Brett Baer? My question is, why the fuck did he do that? Why? Like, if you're Trump at this point, you have to be really selective about who is interviewing you. This is the guy that called Arizona way too early. And in the interview, he went through all these different people that Trump had appointed and got quotes from them about Trump and quotes from Trump about them. And let's just put it this way. They're not very, um, they're not very cordial. They're kind of nasty, nasty quotes back and forth. And so Brett Bayer basically calls him out like, it's gonna be different this time. Who are you gonna get? And I think that that's, I think that's worth discussing. Like if Trump is elected, who is going to work for Trump? I mean, let's ask that question. If he somehow is able to get elected, who's gonna be part of his cabinet? Marjorie Taylor Greene, Laura Loomer, Tracy Beans. Seriously, who's gonna work for Trump? On the, on the economic side, is he going to bring back Wilbur Ross, Steve Mnuchin? I think it'd be a disaster. An absolute disaster. And I could see people just turning down um, potential appointments in the Trump cabinet. Nobody's, nobody's really discuss that part of what happens if and who he's going to again we're way down but there's a, there's a lot of ground to be covered here between now and then my sense is is that if he actually gets through this mars transit of his 12th house um and that he manages to get through this gauntlet I think there's a chance that Trump could be reelected. 
I mean, it just has, I, I looked at his chart for election day and it's actually not bad. I mean, I haven't looked at everybody's chart. I think the biggest challenge to Trump isn't in his own party. I think the biggest challenge to Trump is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And I think Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has enough political cachet with sort of the more traditional Democrats, more kind of centrist Democrats that they may, they, they, it all depends, right? With the primaries and what kind of rules of engagement that the Democrats are gonna be allowing themselves to um, indulge in. I mean, if they pull uh, a Hillary Bernie or a Biden Bernie on, but I think Kennedy is, I don't think they can do that with Kennedy. I don't, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I think, I think Kennedy, not only does he have a built-in base, because he does, but he also has, I think, built-in political connections. that could really throw um, a monkey wrench in the process. I would say, I would say don't sleep on RFK. Now, Gavin Newsom is likely going to run. And he'll, he'll, he'll do anything. He'll do anything, he'll say anything. He's part of an incre incredibly corrupt machine. And I think Gavin Newsom might be RFK's uh, biggest obstacle here on the Democrat side of things. Now, Ted Kennedy actually primaried Jimmy Carter. He, Ted Kennedy was the last Kennedy to run for president. People don't remember that. He primaried Jimmy Carter and he lost in the primaries to Jimmy Carter. But in doing so, Carter had to debate him and Carter weakened his case. Now, listen, Carter was never going to win the election. Let's just be clear about that. But Kennedy's... Um, inclusion in the race didn't help Carter's case for re-election. And the same thing would, I think, be true for Joe Biden and RFK. I just don't think Biden is going to be the candidate. And a lot of people think, well, he's going to be around. They're going to trot him out. And people who voted for him last time, knowing full well that he was just going to be a zombie candidate, will do it again because he's connected to Obama and uh, Val Jarrett and all these other people, right? Like, they don't care. They just don't care. And maybe you could transpose some of that onto the Trump side of things with the whole MAGA crew. Like, they don't care. They don't care that Trump has a spotty record and had an opportunity 
to drain the swamp and really didn't. For most people that are fully on board, they don't care. It's the same kind of ideology in some ways. They just don't care. But I do think that Trump has a very electable chart. Whoever is elected in the next election will be the last president. Not much I can uh, vouch for. All right, let's get into this BlackRock thing. Let me do this. Um, this is from Bernie's tweets. It's this woman who is a pretty uh, popular Twitter following. It's not. It's not Bernie Sanders. There are other Bernies in the world. So this is the uh, tweet that um, inspired today's headline and show. BlackRock and J.P. Morgan set up brand new reconstruction bank. Now, this is from England. As the British taxpayer guarantees another $3 billion for reconstruction in Ukraine, the rest of the country is being carved up by the real winners and the spoils of war, the banker always wins. So here we go. Like, there it is right there. This is from Ukraine Business News. BlackRock and JP Morgan help Ukraine prepare for a new instrument of investors. Maybe they can dust off um, FTX since they're going to bring it back. Sam Bankman free, no charges. He's, he's scot-free, no charges, right? You add the Hunter Biden thing into the mix and hot weather, people's temperature and uh, internal Fahrenheit and Celsius are rising. Higher degrees of anger, higher degrees of... Uh, Being incensed, at some point, it has to be discharged. It has to be discharged because if it doesn't get discharged, what is it? What is what is it? It manifests. It manifests in depression. Depression is the heavy cloud cover for anger. Because you're depressed about the things that you're angry about, but you can't do anything about theoretically. So instead of, you know, punching somebody out or, you know, breaking a window or kicking a wall or whatever, right? People just sit on it and they get depressed. And that's when demoralization kicks in. But we're not gonna see that with the true node in Aries. We're gonna see people blowing off their steam. And it's going to be very interesting, especially as it relates to things like the, the um, Chiron return from the U.S. at 20 degrees, guns, gun control, uh, the police, 
martial law, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right, let's get into more of this BlackRock stuff. So this is um this is all you know pretty fresh, right? And this is from Financial Times. I'm limited there. Hold on. This gives you the uh, the nitty gritty, the details. So here we go. Leading financial firms BlackRock and J.P. Morgan Chase are partnering with the Ukrainian government to establish a reconstruction bank that will serve as a conduit for public seed capital to fund rebuilding projects. The late great Tax Mars did an interview. I think he wrote a book just before he passed away. And he did an interview with um, Jeff Rents. And the book and the interview were centered on this idea that Ukraine would become the next Israel, that they would reclaim uh, the kingdom of Khazaria, and that Ukraine would be the new Khazaria. Right? And then that part of what they're going through with Ukraine right now is part of that process. I mean, if you think about what happens in a war and the reconstruction efforts in a war, they're considerable. And in many cases, not all, you have examples of countries that are strengthened after a so-called reconstruction. Germany certainly was. When Germany was rebuilt and its manufacturing base um, was reestablished, Germany became an absolute titan in the world in terms of automobiles and electronics um, and highly um, efficient technological scientific equipment. You had Siemens, you know, and all these other companies that were, you know, really. Uh, engaged in that kind of high-level development. Japan has its own story. China eventually has a reconstruction period. It's delayed, but it has a reconstruction period. And look what happened to China, right? Huge, booming, really booming. Where it didn't really take hold was uh, Libya and Iraq. Afghanistan, those countries didn't get the benefit. Even a country like Indonesia, where they had a massive civil war between Sukarto and Suharno, right? When that happened, once that was settled, boy, Indonesia became one of the economic powers of the South Pacific. So there's there's a history of, you know, Ordo Ab Chow order out of chaos. And Ukraine seemed to be on the list. So when that happens, then you have the new regime and the new people, um, they're responsible and beholden to the people that will 
rebuild that civilization. And this is exactly what they're talking about. Let's keep going here. Currently in the planning stages, the Ukrainian Development Fund is expected to be fully launched once hostilities with Russia come to an end. Now that tells you that this war is going to come to an end. When they do something like that, they're letting you know that the limited hang is about ready to be over. It just depends on how much more carnage, destruction, and ultimately what they agree upon to let the Russians keep as part of the deal. Crimea and kind of everything east of that river that runs you know, kind of through Ukraine. That'll probably be the deal ultimately. And don't be surprised if the Chinese broker the deal. Americans won't broker the deal. No, the Americans will supply all the money and they'll wire up everything for BlackRock and Chase Morgan. They'll do all that shit, right? They'll, they'll, they, they already supplied FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried and Gary Gensler and, and all the other um, thieves to launder the money, to send it back to the U.S. So all these U.S. politicians will do whatever Ukraine and BlackRock and you know all the other Zio whores want them to do. Sure, why not, right? But it will not broker the peace because that would show the world that the United States is a power and effective. And no, they don't want that. They want China to be the power. They want China to flex its diplomatic muscle. So China will come in and do it. And you'll see Xi Jinping on the cover of Time in Newsweek. Guarantee you that will happen. All right, here we go. Philip Hildebrand, vice president at BlackRock, highlighted the importance of blending financing and addressing long-term challenges, stating you need these vehicles to mobilize capital at scale. Hildebrand will discuss the business during the conference on Wednesday today. According to the World Bank's estimates in March, Ukraine would require... USD $411 billion after the war. Recent Russian attacks have increased this figure even further. So you have to wonder really what Russia's role is in all of this. All right, I'll keep going. Uh, it's about to go on a different tangent. The Ukrainian government engaged the advisory arm of BlackRock in November to explore effective strategies for attracting this type of capital and subsequently enlisted the expertise of J.P. Morgan in February. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky announced last month that the country is collaborating with the two financial giants and advisors from McKinsey. Although no official fundraising target has been set, insiders familiar with discussions suggest that the fund aims to raise and leverage low-cost capital from governments, donors, and international financial institutions to track five to 10 times more private investment. So what are they gonna get out of the deal? You know, one of the things that I've covered before in, in this um, kind of breakdown of Ukraine is Ukraine's biodiversity. It is one of the most biodiverse countries in the world. So you have to ask yourself the question though, if Zelensky's in power, and he's their puppet, then why don't they just continue to kind of mine the biodiversity through Ukraine and Zelensky? 
It's a good question. But I think there's more to be understood here. One of the things that happened with Ukraine, of course, is they took people out of the country. Like there are now, again, literally hundreds of thousands, probably um, you know, bordering millions of migrants now out of Ukraine. But we're talking the eastern part of Ukraine, not necessarily, I'm sorry, the western part of Ukraine, not eastern. So you, you have, again, this kind of migration and to some degree um, replacement um, populace and to some degree economy. So the hollowing out of the population is an interesting component to all of this. So, so part of it is who's left after the storm, right? Who will be um, the either ethnic or religious minority after the storm? Will it be the Greek Orthodox or the, I'm sorry, the Russian Orthodox? Or will it be the people, the same people that decided they were going to overthrow Ukraine and the so-called faith that guides them? Of course, I'm talking about uh, the, uh, the Zyohors in whatever version of Judaism they practice. It's clearly not one that's um, based on peace and extending an olive branch to uh, other people and other faiths. All right, let's keep going. Um, both BlackRock and JP Morgan are offering their services as donations. Nothing is free, which will provide them with early insights into potential investments in Ukraine. They just want a seat at the table. That's all they want, seat at the table. This assignment further strengthens JP Morgan's relationship with Ukraine as a longstanding customer as the bank has facilitated over USD 25 billion in sovereign debt for the country since 2010 and led the restructuring of its USD 20 billion debt last year. Good old JP Morgan. During consultations with private and public investors, BlackRock and JP Morgan identified concerns regarding Ukraine's governance, lack of transparency, and underdeveloped capital markets. To address these apprehensions, BlackRock recommended the establishment of development finance bank that would identify investment opportunities in sectors such as infrastructure, climate, and the big one, agriculture. The aim would be to make these opportunities appealing to pension funds, long-term investors, and lenders. JP Morgan's expertise in debt played a key role in its involvement in the project. Stefan Wheeler, head of Capital Markets Central EMEA at JP Morgan, explained that the fund's purpose is to provide public and private investors with the opportunity in specific projects and sectors. The Ukrainian Development Fund will prioritize different sectoral funds, which will act as vehicles for investment. Wheeler emphasized that the goal of maximizing capital participation. Okay, let me pump the brakes on that and tell you what they're doing. What they are doing is they're looking to set up and collateralize Ukraine's assets so that they could add them to their portfolio as portfolio pieces. Wow. So theoretically, your pension fund, let's say you work for 
No, you work for the state of Massachusetts. And you get a pension from the state of Massachusetts. But the state of Massachusetts has BlackRock managing their pension fund. What is BlackRock using as capitalization and collateral so that that pension fund can not only sustain itself, but grow? Well, throw Ukraine into that package. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? So now you have a multinational titan. I think BlackRock is like, if it was a country, it would be like number three or four in terms of net worth. You have BlackRock tapping into a foreign market to theoretically help keep your pension alive. How about that? And it's all just funny money. It's all just kind of steroidal funny money. That's all it is. So disaster capitalism lends itself to mid to long-term capitalization through pension funds. Wow. Wow. That's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? It's like, let's create this scenario where we're going to have to rebuild this country and we'll attach it to our pension funds and we'll make sure that whatever kind of agriculture, biodiversity, anything that Ukraine has, we now have access to. We essentially own Ukraine. And that theoretically, these pieces of um, collateralization and ownership will help keep you uh, warm and uh, safe and secure deep into your uh, into your your silver your silver years, right? Well, good luck with that, because we what we, what have we seen with Ukraine? It is like incredibly venal and corrupt. Like it has been this central point of money laundering, trafficking. You fucking name it. You it, Ukraine has its name on it, and now BlackRock wants to manage that. So essentially what BlackRock is doing is they're just taking over. They're, they're taking over the management of that operation. And I'll tell you what else they're going to do. They're going to destroy the evidence. They're going to come in along with JP Morgan, and they're going to be like cleaners. And they're going to clean everything up. So any shred of any evidence that is connected to Biden, Burisma, the payoffs, any of that stuff, it'll be gone. Completely memory hold, because they will have a new system that will be overlaid on the top of it, and they'll get rid of any and all documents that lead into Ukraine's checkered past. It's exactly what's going to happen. They're, they're essentially going to clean up the money laundering and they're going to make it legit, right? This is, this, is, this is exactly what the mob does. 
The mob starts off with businesses that are illegitimate. And then eventually they create semi-legitimate businesses to launder money and cover their tracks. That's what BlackRock is doing. They're the mob. BlackRock, JP Morgan. They're going to turn Ukraine into an upstanding entity. Don't you feel great about Ukraine now? They're in good hands with BlackRock, JP Morgan. So it's a sanitization deal in as much as it's a a money deal or a resource deal or a collateral deal. That's what we're talking about, right? Amazing. And then everything will be over. The war will be over. Russia will kind of retreat back into its position. Um, again, they'll probably keep Crimea. They'll probably keep you know sort of the Western parts, but they're not going to come in and fucking annex Ukraine. I mean, essentially, that article is telling you. And when it comes to um, peace, diplomacy, the reordering, the restructuring of borders, BlackRock, JP Morgan, and China will demonstrate the new order. They'll demonstrate the new order. BlackRock is positioning itself to be a transnational global order. That's part of this deal. It's, it's not just getting into and tying into the infrastructure of Ukraine um, and cleaning up the, you know, the, the sordid past, taking over, but it's also establishing BlackRock as a global entity. It's like a Death Star. So yesterday when we were talking about um, the UN and digital ID and banking, add BlackRock to that list, right? BlackRock will more than likely, in addition to some of those companies that we talked about yesterday, BlackRock will be more than welcome, uh, more than happy to provide the digital infrastructure and the partnerships. So BlackRock is... BlackRock is a threat. I mean, they are, and I, if you want to stop the machine, if you want to stop the metastasizing of this kind of global order where entities, I'm going to call BlackRock a company, it's like an entity, where entities like BlackRock or um, Pfizer, right, these massive transnational entities they're the ones that are going to be determining global policy moving forward. And if you want to stop that, you, you, you literally have to cut BlackRock off at the knees. But I just don't know who has the political power or the stones in order to do that. Even if Donald Trump was somehow reelected, right, you're going to have to get an attorney general that can take BlackRock on. And you, you have to also keep in mind 
that when the pandemic hit in 2020, BlackRock was a major player, right? The Trump administration brought BlackRock into the White House and put them right in between the Fed and the Treasury. Like that was one of the biggest moves that the Trump administration made. Do you think Trump is going to undo that once he's in office? Maybe. I mean, there's a part of Trump that you can't really trust. So maybe he would be capable of something like that. But being able to do it politically, that would be extremely difficult. You know, and on the other side of this, you've got BlackRock patrolling over all these other corporations, making sure that their diversity, uh, investment, and environmental or inclusion, you know, their, their diversity, environmental, and inclusiveness component their ESG scores, like they're, they're the ESG cops of the world. BlackRock is a big problem. And I know that there are certain states that have pulled them out of their pension funds. But maybe I'll get a list of those states tomorrow and we can look at them. But BlackRock really is the Death Star. It is the, the, the hypercube. And... Um, I don't I I I don't know how I don't know how governmentally we can stop it. Maybe at a state level, maybe at a county level, you know, if they're involved. I mean, they could be that that far, that deeply entrenched in managing funds that the only way to kind of disentangle from them is to disentangle at that level. Other than that, I just I just see this, you know thing metastasizing and getting bigger and bigger. it's like a not just a black rock it's a black hole it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I, I just don't think trump has the stones or the power to remove them since he was the guy to put it there honestly anyway here's your here's your little black rock update and i think again the big takeaway is black rock ultimately and J.P. Morgan playing the role as cleaners. You know, the cleaner. It's like, uh, you know, Harvey Keitel, where, um, you know, he plays the cleaner wolf. Um, their job is to come in and clean up a scene. That's what, that's what BlackRock is here to do. The cleanup curve, J.P. Morgan. And then they establish their kind of you know, new, they're, they're new and respectable protocols. We're going to make investments safe. Don't worry. Don't worry. You can trust us. Those other people that were there before, that kind of Wild West mentality, uh, that's all over with now. The good guys are here. The white hats are here. Yeah, right. Um. Do we have any other headlines that are interesting today? Tomorrow, I'm going to have a bit of a different show. Well, I wouldn't say it's different. It's similar to things that we always do around here. But fair warning, um, 
I'm going to be looking at sports a little tomorrow. But I'm going to be looking at sports in a way that relates it to um, the economy, ownership, um, and programming. And I'm going to focus to a large extent on the Los Angeles Dodgers ownership group and why they were so uh, eager and enthusiastic to participate in the perpetual, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence Pride Night and Pride Month. So we're going to look at their ownership group. Um, and I'm also going to just going to look at sort of ownership groups in general in sports. And I'm going to try to, to illustrate how by looking at sports ownership groups, we can see how these individuals who accrue power and money, how they do it, who they are, how they do it, and why I think it's important to kind of pull the curtain back. I wouldn't call it necessarily um, corruption in sports, but it's more, it's going to be more along the lines of an examination of what our friend Russ would call turtles on the fence post, economic turtles on the fence post. Okay, what do we have here? Uh, let's see. We got the BlackRock and JP Morgan set up. What else? That's on the headlines. Interesting. What else do we have? Anything else interesting, new? I guess the only other thing is uh, Lauren Boebert bringing articles of impeachment against uh, bribery Biden enforcing a House vote. So there you go. I have zero faith in uh, anything like that happening. Um, I guess the only other thing that I wanted to mention is apparently that submarine that went missing uh, they were found and they're still alive in this in the sub. I don't know what the what the latest is on the Titan sub. It's it's an interesting name, right? Titan. Because we're just talking about BlackRock. Underwater noises heard in search for missing sub near Titanic wreck. Interesting. banging sounds that was six hours ago here's a guy talking about how it was a suicide mission because he had been he'd been on that sub before that's interesting Wow, this is a really primitive looking sub. 
Holy shit. Would you really want to go in this damn thing? Let me show you this. Would you want to go in this? This, this is the submarine. I tell you, man, I'm a little claustrophobic. I would, I would, I would not want to be in something like this. One toilet on board hidden by curtains when in use. Powered by four electric thrusters, no seats for passengers. It's 22 feet long. It's got an acrylic viewport. I guess you can take a crap and also kind of uh, indulge in the acrylic viewport. So they must have some cameras in here too, right? Pilot uses video game controller to steer craft. What the fuck is this thing? This is a total suicide mission. Yeah. What do the kids say? Miss me with that? Definitely miss me with that. Want to see how they look inside of it? I'll show you a picture of how they look inside of it. Right here. This is from a guy who was actually inside this uh, in a different journey. Oh, Jesus. No thanks. This is German guy, Arthur Loibel. It was a suicide mission back then. Explained the Bavarian entrepreneur calling his own journey into the abyss. The first submarine didn't work. Then a dive at 1,600 meters had to be abandoned. Loibel explained that they ended up launching five hours late due to electrical issues, which he suspects is to blame for the Titan crew's current predicament. Not only that, but right before the voyage, the bracket of the stabilization tube, which balances the sub, tore and had to be reattached with zip ties. Unfortunately, the cramped conditions on board the Titan weren't exactly reassuring. You need strong nerves. You mustn't be claustrophobic. You have to be able to sit cross-legged for 10 hours, described the aquanaut, who has circumvented Titanic's remains twice in Titan. So this is, they've done this before. He did it twice. Not once, but twice. Look at this thing. Did you go in that? I wouldn't go in that. Maybe when I was younger. As of Tuesday afternoon, officials said there was only 40 hours of oxygen left on the Titan. Wow. So I guess they're off the coast of Canada. Uh, Coast Guard officials said they're currently focusing all their efforts on locating the sub first before deploying any vessel capable of reaching as far below as 12,500 feet where the Titanic wreck is located. Why would the fuck would you want to go 12,000 feet just to look at the Titanic? Why would you want to do that? This is such a south-noted Scorpio kind of journey. 
isn't it? Like you're, you're really way down. Saturn, Saturn and Pisces, you're cramped. You're in this little tube. Man, not for me. All right. I hope they get out though. Because I'm sure they'd like to get the fuck out of there. All right. That's it for today. Thanks for being here. Um, we'll be back tomorrow. God, I can't believe it's Thursday already. But um, tomorrow. So we'll be back tomorrow. And we're going to pull the curtain uh, back on, first of all, the doctor's ownership group. Because from an ideological Sociocultural perspective. I think it's an interesting look behind the curtain. I'll just give you one little morsel. Guggenheim. Guggenheim. Just remember that name. They're part of the ownership group. And then we're going to, I think, have a, a broader discussion about um, power and sports and who makes the money and who buys the teams and how they get there. And even the funny money in sports. I'm beginning to think that even some of these um, athletic teams are also uh, money laundering operations. We'll explore more of that tomorrow. All right. Thanks for being here. Uh, Chacharya, you're the best. Use your head in order to show what's real, your heart to say what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Don't forget our friends at True Hemp Science and support them. Type in 15MINS when you buy $100 of product or more. $150 or more gets free shipping. Always a 30-day money-back guarantee. Chatari, you're the best. Take care. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Bye for now.